This morning we're beginning a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. And as we think about the life of Jesus as told here in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, it it kind of raises an interesting question. Where does one begin in telling the story of Jesus? How do you start the narrative about who Jesus is? You know, you think about these four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, They had encountered Jesus, and now they sit down to write the story of Jesus. You know, when when they first, when the apostles first met Jesus, you know, uh, what did they think about him? Perhaps they thought he was just another uh, fellow Jew, another citizen of Israel. But then he began to teach, and they said, "Wow, maybe this is a rabbi." They heard him teach more, and they said, "Wow, this is an exceptional rabbi." Perhaps they continued to be around him and see his miracles, to see his healing. And, uh, and they thought, maybe this is a prophet. Look at the miracles that he's doing. And eventually, at some point, the people who were around Jesus came to believe that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. And now they're sitting down to write the story. And I don't know if you've ever written anything or, or, or tried to write. And, you know, that's always the hardest part for me is how do you start? You know, when I write my sermon every week, I have all these things I want to say, but I think I've got to start somehow. And so here are these writers of these four Gospels trying to get it going. Where do they start telling the story of Jesus? And I suppose there's a lot of places you could start, and the different Gospel writers start different places. You know, there's Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and he starts the story of Jesus at the moment when Jesus erupts onto the world stage, seemingly out of nowhere. Just this guy from Galilee uh, who who is suddenly... uh, healing the sick and casting out demons and teaching like they've never heard anybody teach before. And here comes Jesus onto the world scene proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's one place to start the story. Matthew and Luke actually start the story further back than that. If you look at the gospels of Matthew and Luke, they start the story at Jesus's birth. And they describe all of the supernatural events that surrounded Jesus' birth. The angels appearing to Joseph, the angels appearing to Mary, the angels appearing to the shepherds, the wise men, all the Christmas stories with which we're familiar. Um, and, and so that's where they start their stories, with the birth of Jesus, and they begin to tell it from there. When actually, uh, t- technically, they start their stories before the birth of Jesus. Because if you know the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they actually also contain genealogies. I know some of you are into genealogies. You like, you know, figuring out if you're related to a pilgrim or not. Well, the biblical writers were very much into genealogies because God worked down through history and and God worked uh, through people and through families. And so Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus and Matthew takes us back to King David. He was an ancestor of Jesus. And then back to Abraham. So, so one of the things Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to King David and the promises to Abraham. He, he wants to connect Jesus as the fulfillment of all of Jewish history and all of the Old Testament writings. Luke's genealogy goes back, he kind of leapfrogs way even past that. You know, Luke's, Luke's genealogy takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He takes us back to Adam and you know, finally says Jesus, the son of Adam, 
the Son of God. And that's because of something Luke wants to tell us about Jesus, that Jesus was there for all men, that, that, uh, that there's a certain universality and a, and a kind of uh, theological populism to Jesus' uh, message in the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke takes us back to Adam, who's the father of all men, both Jew and Gentile. And so Luke starts the story, I suppose as early as, as, early as you can possibly get, back to the Garden of Eden, back to Adam and Eve and God creating them in the garden. I mean, you can't get any further back than that in telling the story of Jesus, can you? Well, John actually goes back before that. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John takes us all the way back to in the beginning. He starts the story of Jesus before the before, (laughs) before the start, as far back as you can possibly take it. Notice when John's talking about in the beginning, he means even before creation, because it's not until verse 3 of John's prologue that he even hits creation, through him all things were made. So he was in the beginning before things were made, and it's because he existed that things that we call the universe came into existence. So for John, the story of Jesus starts way, way back, way in the beginning. Uh, If you look in your bulletins, you'll find this little white insert. I'd invite you to take that out. I I put a bunch of uh, scripture verses on this insert because there's a lot of texts I'd like you to be thinking about and be aware of as we study Jesus this morning in in John. And rather than have you flip back and forth, I thought it'd just be convenient to put them down for you. And if you look on the front where it says the gospel of John in the beginning was the word, look at the second citation down. This is from John 8. Here Jesus was teaching and he claimed to have seen Abraham. And of course his hearers are incredulous. They say, you're not 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Woo, what did he just say? It's almost like if he was speaking through a microphone, you'd want to add reverb to that. Before Abraham was born, I am, I am, I am. You know, that's kind of a, a, a majestic, echoey sort of feel like, what did he just say? I am? And so it speaks of this pre-existent reality of Christ. Or, or look at John 17, verse 5. We'll come back to this later and really dig into it. But look what he says in the next citation. And now, Father, he says, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so there's an awareness, a self-consciousness in Jesus that his story began before his life on earth that we know, even before the world began, that he was with God in some way before the world began. In fact, if you go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, there's even something interesting happening here. You don't, unfortunately, it doesn't quite come through in the English translations. This is one of those times where where the Greek is really, really, really cool because what John does is he uses two different Greek words 
for, for what we would say in English is the verb to be. You know, to be, is, are, am, uh, were. You know, that, that verb, that stative verb, to be. And, and John uses two different Greek words for it. He uses one word to be when he's talking about the word existing forever in the past. He uses a different word in these first 18 verses for to be to describe things that exist kind of in time, space, in this world, things that have come to be. So, so he even uses a little bit different vocabulary to signal what he's talking about a little bit. So when he says in the beginning was the word, he uses one word for word, for was. And then down in verse 14 when he says the word became flesh, in other words, when the word entered creation, it's a different word to, to again sort of differentiate between this eternal existence and the world that we know that exists in time and space. So that, that's where the story starts. It starts in the beginning. It's like those theological questions kids ask their parents. You know, mommy, daddy, like, wh- where did the world come from? Well, God made it, honey. And the kid thinks, the little budding theologian. Then, of course, they come back with another question. Well, before the world existed, what was there? Well, in the beginning was the Word. There was the Word. So John is unique in that he starts the story of Jesus as far back as could possibly be told in the beginning. He's also unique because of the name that he uses for Jesus, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean? He's the only one to call Jesus the Word. In fact, this is the only time in his gospel that he calls Jesus the Word. After that, he shifts to other language about Jesus. None of the other gospel writers call Jesus the Word. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we find Jesus called the Word, except there's one other place, Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus comes back at his second coming, riding on the white horse, and it's written on him a name, the Word of God. But besides that, this is a unique name for Jesus, the Word. Why is he called the Word? Why doesn't it say in the beginning was the Son of God? Why doesn't it say in the beginning was the Son of Man? In the beginning was the Christ. You know, titles that we're more familiar with for Jesus. Why does it start with the Word? And uh, let me just say, there has been much ink spilled wrestling with that one little word, Word. Why is he called the Word? Uh, Many a dissertation has been launched as people have tried to wrestle with the meaning of the word, word here. Was it a Greek term? Was it part of Greek philosophy? This was a loaded word in, in Greek philosophical circles. But I don't think we have to go to Greek philosophy to understand this, to understand what the word, word means here. Um, we, we need to do a basic thing. We just need to understand the context. If you ever come to something in the Bible that's hard to understand and you're wrestling with it, this is like the most important principle of Bible interpretation. This is 101. This is the first thing you do. You always try to understand the context because context is how we know what words mean. It's by listening to the words around them. And so if you're ever trying to understand something in the Bible, don't just start speculating. You know, start and say, well, what is, what's going on in the context? So let's, as we try to understand what the word word means here, why Jesus is called the word, Let's look at these first few verses. And let me ask you this. As you look through verses 1 to 5, these verses I just read, does it remind you of anything else in the Bible? Does it it sound like another part of the Bible kind of echoing? 
Does, does the language here seem familiar in some way? Did, you know, what other part of the Bible does it sound like? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How does the whole Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so I believe John is sort of drawing upon, if, if, if not a direct quotation, then at least the imagery and the language and the themes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you know, in the beginning. In fact, you know, we call the book of Genesis, Genesis, but back then, the name of the book of Genesis was in the beginning. So they wouldn't say, turn in your Bibles to Genesis. They would say, you know, turn your Bibles to in the beginning. And they didn't really turn, it was scrolls. But anyway, you get the point. Um, so, so that's the line. I mean, that phrase, in the beginning, points you back to Genesis, Notice the creation language, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so we're, again, the Genesis story, the creation story is very much right uh, in John's mind here. It's shaping what he's writing. Verse 4, in him was life. Genesis is the story of God breathing life, God speaking living things into existence, God breathing life into Adam. Even this light language, in him was Life and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. It's just so Genesis, isn't it? What's the first thing God creates? Light. He says, "Let there be light." And, and so, I, I, all that to say that I think John has the Genesis story as a kind of mental framework that he's using as his starting place to tell the story of Jesus. Like I'm going to start telling the story of Jesus, and I'm going to go back and use how the whole Bible begins, and I'm going to show where Jesus fits into that in a sense, and all that's informing it. Now, with that in mind, what does the word word mean? Why is Jesus called the word? Well, think about that creation context. How does God create the world? Does he use a nail gun and a sawzall? Does he have uh, graphic design software? Does he have like a, a model kit with glue and little, you know, pencil knives to make the model airplane? You know, how, did, how does God create the world? He speaks with his word. And so even in that Genesis story, God's word is f- prominent again and again. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. You know, there's an effortlessness to, uh, to this, the telling of the creation story. You don't get a sense at the end of Genesis 1 that God is sweaty, uh, you know, that, that God needs a shower, that God is tired, that God needs to put his foot up or chill out. I mean, he just speaks, you know, let there be light, and boop, it, it happens. And, and so here's God creating with the effortlessness of his power through simple speech. And, and so John is drawing upon that whole framework, and he's saying that Jesus was the word that the speech of God that created the world. You see, God's speech in the Bible, when God speaks, it's never just words. It's never just sounds. It's never just letters on a page. God's word is alive. It's active. It, it is a, it's a creative agent. When God makes a promise, it comes true. When God threatens a judgment, a judgment happens. When God speaks something into existence, it exists. Unlike me, you know, I say a lot of things. I make a lot of promises. And my words, you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so great. There's a lot of hot air. We have talk radio. We have cable news. We have lots of words flying around. We have the internet. We have Facebook. Words everywhere. And so much of it means nothing. 
But every time God speaks, it, it is. And it's not just that God's words are powerful, but if you can get this, it's that in the Bible, God's presence is inseparable from his words, so that where God's words are, God is. God's words, in a sense, kind of mediate God's reality. That's how God shows up, is in his word. When his word comes, he is there. So, so that even though God and his word are distinct, yet they're, they're inseparable, they're, they're one thing. And so when God is speaking, he's revealing himself. So that's why, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets would hear from God. And, and there's a little Old Testament phrase that's used over and over. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. It's this idea of God arriving through his word, encountering the prophet and telling the prophet what to do. It's not just sounds coming out of God like me, just sounds coming out of my mouth but it's actually God present, accomplishing, doing things through his word. So I think that's what John is saying about Jesus, that he's the word, that, that Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. God is present in the word, accomplishing what he will accomplish. And it is that, that indissoluble link between God and his word. It's that unbreakable connection between the creator and the creative command, the two things that that you cannot divide, that leads John to then say this amazing proposition about who God is, about who Jesus is. In the beginning was the word. Get this. The word was with God, And the word was God. The word was with God and the word was God. With and was. Which raises an interesting question. How do you be with and was simultaneously? (laughs) I understand with and I understand was, but how can the same word be with and was? How does that work? This word from the beginning, this word from before time, this word that's not just sounds coming out of a mouth, but that is a person, that is the presence of God himself. How can he be with and was? Well, let's talk about both of those sides of this assertion. First of all, the word was with God. And, and, and that idea of being with is, is the idea of a relationship. You know, that, that's what the, the sense of it is, is that when we say the word was with God, we mean that the word was actually like a person that was with God. It, it's the same way I would say, you know, I've, um, my wife and my, uh, I are going to have our 20th anniversary this coming August. And I, I can say, I've been with her for 20 years. We've been with each other. We, we've been in a relationship together. Or maybe you're sitting at Derby Street shop and you're looking out the window and you see some woman walk by with a guy, you know, on her arm and you go, she's still with him? I can't believe she's still with him. <laughs> with. It's a relationship. And so God and the Word have been with each other, not in a romantic sense, but in a relationship sense. They've been together. There's a connection there. There's a a joining in in friendship and fellowship. Look back at your sermon notes. Look at that quote we looked at earlier, John chapter 17. It's the third quote down. This is Jesus praying. 
He says, and now, Father, John 17, 5, third citation down, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, have you ever heard anybody pray like that? That's ridiculous. You know, Father, glorify me. We don't, we don't say that. Could you imagine if Pastor Godwin, when he got up here to pray earlier, started his prayer with, prayer with Lord, glorify me. You know, we would say, like, check, please. I'm done here. <laughs> Something's gone wrong. This, this is not how people pray. People don't pray, Father, glorify me. And they definitely don't say things like, with the glory I had with you before the world began. But notice that phrase, the glory I had with you. So there was a self-consciousness in Jesus that before he was Jesus on planet earth, he had been with the Father, with God in some kind of way that, that, that he was with him, that they were together, that they shared something. In fact, what they shared was, was a relationship. Look at uh, the next line underneath that, which is verse 24 from John 17, where he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So the relationship that they had wasn't just God and word. It wasn't just God speaking a bunch of sounds. No, the word was a person, and and the word was with God, and there was love. Glory, love, delight, satisfaction, that they were in relationship with each other in some way. The word was with God, and they, they loved each other. There was joy. There was happiness. You know, daddy, uh, mommy, uh, you know, what was there before the world began? Well, in the beginning was the word. The little theologian thinks a little bit more, and the little theologian says, well, well, if it was just the word, wasn't the word lonely? No. The word was with God. The word was with God. God was with the word. God has never been lonely. God has never been bored. God has never been deficient. God has never been truly sad. God isn't empty. God isn't discouraged. (laughs) You know? God isn't like like kids on the second day of summer vacation. I'm bored. (laughs) It's only been two days. I know, but I'm bored. There's nothing to do. You know, it's not like God was kicking around wherever God was before anything was made, saying, this is so boring. There's no one to talk to. Maybe I'll make something, because this is boring, you know. Why don't you go make something? Okay, I'll make something. I'll make the universe. No, that wasn't that exciting. You know, it wasn't like that. It's not that God was lacking something, and so he created in order to fill up a deficiency in himself. It's that God was so full. That's why he created. God has always been happy. Because God, the Father, and the Son are together. God and the Word quickly in John, in fact, in the next few verses, shift to the Father and the Son. And so there's this wonderful intimacy and relationship that that God is happy in God's self. And so God created the world not because he was lacking something and needed to add something in. He created the world because he was so full. It wasn't like an empty cup. It was like a fountain that was bubbling over with so much water it just spilled out. It was like the dam that held the reservoir breaks because the, the spring rains have, and, and the spring melt have so swollen the reservoir that it couldn't hold it back. It, it's, it was God bubbling over like a pot 
cooking soup that just spills over onto the oven. God was so full and so happy and so content in, in, in himself that, that it, it boiled over and God decided to create out of his joy in order to amplify and show the awesomeness of who he was. So the word was with God. There was a happiness. There was a unity. But also, the word was God. With God, and yet also was God. There it is. I don't know any plainer than the New Testament can make it than that, than to say the word was God, that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. There it is. The Greek grammar, the the word order is very emphatic on the godness of God, of the word. So, you know, in English it'd be like the word was God, capital letters, bold, italic, underline, red font, 24-point font, boom. You know, it, it has that kind of emphatic feel to it. The word is with God and the word was God. Not just that the word was a God, not just that the word was divine in some generalized sense, but it was God. The same God he was with is is the God he was. The word was God. It comes out again down in verse 18. Interesting that verse 1 and verse 18 sort of form bookends to this whole section. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, or God the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So there's the withness that, that he's with the Father. In fact, that phrase is not just he was at the Father's side, but it's like he was in the Father's bosom. He was, you know, they, they were so close. They, they loved each other, this intimate connection. So there's the withness, but there's also the wasness. Because look what this one who is at the Father's side is called. He's called God the one and only. God the only begotten. And so the New Testament writers, as they grappled with Jesus, as the apostles wrestled with who he was, that he was more than just a prophet, that he was the Messiah, but he was more than a Messiah, more than a Savior. He was God. And and that was something the New Testament writers, as they, they wrestled with what they had seen Jesus do, and I would argue what they heard Jesus say led them to believe that he really was God. That's how he talked about himself Um, And so if you look at your sermon notes again, I I just want to throw these verses in there. They're so interesting. But all these different passages where there are very explicit statements by the gospel and the New Testament writers about Jesus being God. Actually, you could start way back in Isaiah. Look at the first quote. This is Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That the descendant of David will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father. It's like, well, well is he God or is he descendant of David? Yes, he is. There it is. He's with God. He was God. Or, or look down the list to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Here's Paul encouraging the Philippians to be unified and to not bicker and to not put those interests first, to put other int- others' interests first in the church. And he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. His, his nature is God. He is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know, any of you math majors here? 
Here's the formula. Jesus equals God. Equality with God. Jesus equals God. Solve that equation. Well, it's kind of solved already. Right. Jesus is God. He's divine. That's what Paul is saying. Colossians 1, we just read that at the beginning of the service. He is the image of the invisible God. So he's the image. An image is a a physical thing you look at of the invisible God. When you see the physical Jesus, you are seeing the invisible God. Jesus had the temerity to say, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the image, you've seen the invisible. I'm God made visible for you in human flesh. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Or look at just one more, this last one at the bottom. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's all God language applied to the Son. And so as the apostles reflected on what Jesus said about himself, they said he's God. He's with God and he was God. And then as the church reflected on what Jesus said and what the apostles said, the church said we worship Jesus who is God. And uh, if, if you look on the back of your sermon notes, you'll see this creed here, the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed? Uh, one of the ancient early creeds of the church. It was uh, adopted in 325 A.D. And it was adopted in the midst of controversy over whether or not Jesus was God. And the majority of the church at that time affirmed that the apostles taught that Jesus was God and that that that's what Jesus himself taught. But there was a sort of a minority report in the church, some who said, no, Jesus wasn't God in the same way that the Father was God. There was a guy named Arius who was a, a presbyter of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And Arius, who, who started what's known as Arianism, uh, not Arianism in the sense of a sort of modern Arianism as, as a racial, a racist notion, but Arianism in the sense that a doctrine that says that Jesus was created by God and then Jesus worked with God to help create everything else. And, and the church said, that's not right. He is God. He's always been God. He's with the Father and has always been God. And so they made this creed. We believe in one God, the Father. One God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Get this next paragraph. In, in, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, Arius, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So he's forever God. He's with God as a son is with the Father, but he wasn't born. He didn't start at any time. He's always been because he's God. He's divine. So going back to John chapter 1. The word was with God. I mean, look what the word does. John chapter 1, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In the Bible, who makes everything? God does. God is the creator, period. There aren't other creators. Creation wasn't made by a committee in the biblical worldview. There weren't, wasn't a team of engineers and designers. There was just God. And so to say that the word made the world is to say that that the word is God. 
You know, without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that, that little phrase there means that, that Jesus wasn't made. Because if it's true that Jesus was made, then it wouldn't be true that without him, nothing was made that hasn't been made, because then he'd be something that was made. So, you know, logically, it's, it's impossible to say that Jesus was made and verse 3 to still be true. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. You know, who's life in the Bible? God is life. Who's light in the Bible? God is light. So all of these attributes are given to Christ, they're given to the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Word was in a unique, intimate relationship with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, how does that work? Theologians have come up with a term to describe how the, the word was with God and was God. There's a term to describe how the Father was with the Son and, and yet there's one God. Do you know what that term is? It's called the Trinity. <laughs> right? Except there's also the Holy Spirit. One God, not three gods. We don't worship three gods. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the God, God is one. There's not three, there's one God. But within that one God, there is a community. That God is three persons inside one God. That, that God is, is enjoying God's self and together with God's self. God is not lonely or empty or deficient or solitary. But, but there is this love fest, this glory fest that's been going on and will for always go on inside of God. It's, it's Trinity. It's with and was at the same time, right? So, so for all eternity, God has been happy because God has been doing the best thing that any being can do. You know, what is the happiest, most wonderful, most glorious, most satisfying thing that any being, human being, angel, God, what's the most the happiest thing you could spend your time doing? Well, it's to glorify and enjoy God. That's why God made us. You know, what, what is the meaning of life, the philosopher asks. The meaning of life, ultimately, the reason we're here on planet Earth, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because there's nothing more wonderful and joyous than God himself. Now, here's something. Check this out. If you can make this leap with me. The purpose of human life is identical to the purpose of God's life. Why does God exist? God exists to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so God's highest purpose is to enjoy himself because if he enjoyed something else more than himself, then he would be an idolater. That doesn't even make sense. He is the greatest thing. And so God is all about God. So for all eternity, God has been looking at God and it's wonderful. He has been savoring and delighting in and glorifying and enjoying the presence of God. God has been with God. The Father has been with the Son. It's not like us when we enjoy ourselves in the mirror in the morning. You know, you know, you know it's not like that. It's, it's more than that. It's not just a reflection. It's not just like God was looking in some mirror in space. It's that God was in the presence of God. Because for God to really enjoy God fully and perfectly, God has to be both the subject and the object of God enjoying God. 
And so the father has been beholding with joy and celebrating the son. And the son has been enjoying and delighting in the father, separate with but also the same. Anything less than that, they wouldn't be able to enjoy. God wouldn't be able to celebrate God. And get this, the love between them, the enjoyment between them, the satisfaction they have in each other is so strong and so perfect and so undiluted and so everything it should be. The spirit between them is so strong that it's God (laughs) because anything else would have been a deficient enjoyment on God's part. And so God is enjoying God with the, the spirit of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this amazing dance, this amazing celebration of God savoring that which is utmost, which is himself. And to think that he invites us into this. His purpose was to bring his people into this. You know, when I think about the Trinity, it makes my head hurt. And it makes my heart burn. My head hurts, but my heart burns. I don't get it, but I want it. That's it. Wow. Here's two mind-boggling thoughts, as if our minds haven't been boggled enough by the, the, wit, the wasness and withness of the word. Two mind-boggling thoughts I'll leave you with. Mind-boggling thought number one. Isn't it mind-boggling? how indifferent we are to the word of God. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Darkness doesn't care. You could even translate understood. You could translate that overcome. The darkness has not overcome it. We're indifferent. We're ignorant. We're unconcerned. We're opposed. You know, this world is so excited about so many things. People are fired up about sports. People are fired up about sports for their kids. We're fired up about politics. We get fired up about restaurants. We get fired up about music. And, and not that they're all bad things, but we get so energized about that. And yet the world is so indifferent to the word, Jesus. But he is. He's life. He's light. He's what we were made for. And we just don't care. We don't think about it. We don't strive. We don't cry out. We don't yearn. And not only does the world not care, the church can be so indifferent to Jesus. You know, the church where Jesus is exalted can have such a low intensity of love for him. And I look at my life and I'm like, really? Do I really treasure him as he's described here? My treasuring of Christ has such a low intensity, such a low wattage. And so my hope in preaching through the Gospel of John for however many months this is going to take us, my my prayer is, basic prayer is that we would meet Jesus. For some of us, that may be meeting him for the first time. For some of us, we've been looking for light and life everywhere else. We've looked for light and life in relationships. We've looked for light and life in our work. We've looked for the light and the life in drugs. We've looked for light and life in possessions. And I just pray that we would meet Jesus for the first time. 
And I pray for those of us who know Jesus, who claim to know Jesus, who really do know him, that we would meet him again, that we'd meet him afresh, that there would be a fresh encounter with him, that I would meet a Jesus who would break out of all of the comfortable places I've put him in my life, (laughs) and that he would captivate us again, that we would stand in awe. Here's the second staggering thing. One is that we're so indifferent to him and actually opposed to him. And the second is this. This is even more staggering. That in spite of our indifference, despite of our rejection and opposition to Christ in so many subtle ways, he has still come to save a people. Verse 14. We're going to get there in two weeks. Verse 14. The word became flesh. To think that in order to save a calloused, hardened, resistant people, the Word became flesh. The the Word who created all things became part of creation. The one who was with God left God's presence to be with us. The one who was God became a human being so that you could also say he was man, which is another great mystery. That, That the one who is life laid down his life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He died our death. The one who was light plunged himself into darkness so that we could come out of the darkness into the light. That Jesus came to die for sinners like me. He came to rescue his opponents. He came to die for those who were uh, opposed to him in every way. That's even more amazing. That for God so loved the world, this world, And isn't that what we need? You know, you look at this world. Man, this world is just so messed up. It's so broken. This world is so broken. It's wonderful in many ways. It's simultaneously wonderful and a disaster. You know, and and what's going to fix the world? What's going to fix the brokenness of our hearts? What's going to save us from our sins? What what can do it? You know, self-help, politics, education, religion, you know, what's the answer? And all those things are important in their own ways, but the problem with all of these solutions we come up with to fix ourselves in the world is that they're all part of the world. And so, you know, we've lost before we've even begun. It's all part of the world system. No, if we're going to have a real savior, any hope for this world, it must be someone from beyond. Someone who is outside of. Someone who comes from a different place. Not by looking within, because I know what's within. It's the same stuff that's all around me. I need to look above and beyond. I need a Savior who was there before the world began. I need the one who was with God. I need the one who is God. I need Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you to even help us realize how much we need you. Even our sense of need and longing is so inadequate. But I thank you that you are there. I thank you that you are above and beyond and you're also closer than we could possibly imagine. That you died for us, that you took on flesh. Thank you that you are the Savior who is omnipotent God but also the man on the cross next to us. Oh Lord, you are exactly what we need. I do pray that as we study the Gospel of John over the next coming weeks that you would 
restir in us a, a longing for you. I pray, Lord, that people who've never met you, maybe a lot of us here have gone in churches our whole lives, but we've never really met Jesus. And I pray that we would meet him as we study his word. Lord, we believe you're present in your word just as you used to be. And so as we study the word of God, the gospel of John, Lord, may you be present with us, present to save, present to call. Lord, may our hearts be stirred. May, may there be in, in cold hearts an ember that is lit today. And may that ember grow over the coming weeks and months. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and